chapter 7. So we are continuing our series in the Gospel of Matthew. This is message number 17 now in this series entitled Kingdom Quandary. Matthew chapter 7, we'll be looking at verses 7 to 12. Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For every one that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocketh it shall be opened. Or what man is there of you, whom if his son ask bread, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he give him a serpent? If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father which is in heaven give good things to them that ask him? Therefore, all things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them, for this is the law and the prophets. So Amaziah was the king of Judah in the first half of the 8th century B.C. He followed his father Joash, and then he was succeeded by his son Uzziah. Uzziah was the king during the early part of the prophet Isaiah's ministry. Now after that Amaziah was made king, he executed his father's murderers, and then he set to engaging Edom in war. And this was around 70 years before the northern kingdom of Israel was carried away by the Assyrians. So he numbered the fighting men of Judah and Benjamin at 300,000 that were able to go to war, were able to handle the, the, the spear and the shield. And he decided to hire an additional 100,000 soldiers from the northern kingdom of Israel. And he hired them for 100 talents of silver. Now, as I understand, a talent was a unit of weight that was somewhere equivalent to around 70 to 75 pounds, which means this would have worked out if we take the lower figure, 70 pounds at 100 talents, to somewhere around three and a half tons of silver that would be paid to these soldiers from the northern kingdom of Israel. Well, God sent a prophet to Amaziah, and you can read about it in 2 Chronicles chapter 25, verses 7 to 9. But there came a man of God to him, saying, O king, let not the army of Israel go with thee, for the Lord is not with Israel, to wit with all the children of Ephraim. But if thou wilt go, do it, be strong for the battle. God shall make thee fall before the enemy, for God hath power to help and to cast down. And Amaziah said to the man of God, But what shall we do for the hundred talents which I have given to the army of Israel? And the man of God answered, The Lord is able to give thee much more than this. So this prophet warned Amaziah not to go to war against Edom with the men of Israel, or he would fall to Edom. And Amaziah, of course, was worried about the silver. Well, what are we going to do about all of this money, essentially, that I've already paid to these soldiers from the northern tribe of Israel? It was a significant amount, obviously. And he did go on to send them back, even though, um, you know, they took their pay and, and they were angry that they got sent away the way they did. In fact, they attacked several cities of Judah um, on their way back. They killed 3,000 men. They carried off a lot more spoil besides the money that they'd already received. So in the end, his involvement with Israel 
cost him and Judah, the southern kingdom, dearly. However, they did go on to defeat the Edomites. So Amaziah's quandary was what to do when God's word required something from him that he realized was going to be very physically costly to him. So God's word is requiring one thing, and it's going to cost me dearly to obey that word. Well, the prophet, when he spoke to Amaziah, essentially told him a couple of things. One of those was that God has the power to help or to cast down. In other words, you can go to battle with all of your strength and all of your might and all of your hired soldiers, but that doesn't mean that you're going to prevail. If, if God is not in it and God is not for it, is against it, then you will fall. The other thing that the prophet told him was, well, God certainly has the ability to give you more than what was lost. He didn't promise that God would give him that, but he did say God has the ability to give you more than what you have lost. Well, by the time that we get to our passage here in Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 to 12, we see that there's quite a quandary for kingdom citizens that's somewhat similar. So we are getting close to the end of the Sermon on the Mount that began in, in Matthew chapter number 5. And Jesus has commanded us to live in such a way in this present age that seems very risky and it seems very costly. And so that puts us in a very similar quandary to that of Amaziah. But the passage before us actually answers this quandary. So chapter 7 opens up with Jesus' words concerning judging and discernment. He commanded not to judge harshly or mercilessly or hypocritically in a way that grossly overlooks our own faults. We have to conduct ourselves toward others realizing that we shall give an account of ourselves before Jesus one day. So if we have a sense of being forgiven for our sins, then that means that Jesus was judged and condemned in our place so that we could be saved and inherit eternal life. And that should certainly make us patient and merciful and gracious toward others. Well, by the time that we get to this point in the Sermon on the Mount, we're almost all the way through it. And Jesus has strung together many commands that seem to expose us to quite a bit of risk in order to obey them. Let's just think for a moment about some of the things that Jesus has said to this point. He began back in chapter 5 and verses 10 to 12. He began there talking about persecutions, being persecuted for the sake of Christ, being reviled and hated and slandered and all those sort of things. He has commanded that we are to live with our neighbors without hating them, without being angry with them, without proper cause in verses 21 to 26. He's commanded that we are to love our spouses without committing adultery or lusting after others in verses 27 to 32. We are to keep our word and to speak in simple, honest terms according to verses 38 to 42. We're not to hate our enemies nor wish evil upon them, but do them good and pray for them in verses 43 to 48. We come into chapter 6, and he has commanded that we are to give generously without the prospect of earthly reward in verses 1 to 4. We're to pray in secret 
and to trust that God will reward openly, verses 5 to 15. We are to fast in secret and not to seek the praise of men, verses 16 to 18. We are not to give our lives to accumulating treasure on earth, verses 19 to 24. We are also not to fret and worry over the necessities of life, verses 25 to 34. And then we come into verse 7, and we're told that we're not to judge harshly, we're not to judge hypocritically, but we must have discernment. So now when we look at chapter 7, verses 7 to 12, in this context, we certainly see how that it does connect to the previous part of this sermon by answering this quandary of risk that we have in this present age. And Jesus here returns to the topic of prayer, though he has a different purpose here than what he did in the other passage. And by the end, he gives assurance to mitigate the risks of righteousness, as it were. In verses 7 to 8, Jesus commands us plainly to ask. And in verses 9 to 12, Jesus speaks about the Father giving good gifts. So we want to look first here at verses 7 and 8, where Jesus commands us to ask. Verse 7, Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. Well, we've already seen that Jesus has not denied in any way that we have needs. As we live our lives in this, in this present age, we have needs. There are necessities of life. He talked about food and drink and clothing and, and, and such things. And he's, he's, he's already told us that the Father knows that we have need of such things before we ask him. So we're not to be overworried about such basic necessities of life. We're not to become enslaved to the pursuit of these things and trying to um, assure ourselves of these things. But the fact that the Father knows what we have need of before we ask him does not eliminate the need of prayer. In fact, Jesus is saying the opposite. And the fact that the Father knows the things that we have need of before we ask him helps us to see why we are praying to him. So it's part of our communication with God. It's a part of our sanctification. It's a part of our growth in faith. And and another way that we could simply put it is, is that it is God's will that's been revealed to us that we are to pray to him. And Jesus gives this command and he says, ask, seek, and knock. So Jesus said very plainly that we are to pray, whether it's praying for our daily bread or whether it's praying for wisdom in how to speak to someone in our life, we are to ask. Now, the terms that Jesus uses here, ask, seek, and knock, these terms all show a certain persistence to them. They all show a certain um, intensity to them. We can see that there's a a progression from the lesser to the greater in the asking, seeking, and and knocking. And here's the promise that Jesus gives. It will be opened to you. So this this is assurance. Jesus is giving assurance that we will be heard. In other words, the Father is not deaf to our needs. 
He's not deaf to our pleas. He's not deaf to our prayers, even though he knows far better than we do, actually, everything that we need before we even ask. Well, then we come to verse number eight. For everyone that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocketh it shall be opened. So Jesus is here explaining this command to persistent prayer, the asking, seeking, and knocking. He's telling us that, that we're sure to be heard and we're sure to be answered. Now, a lot more could be said about prayer from the Bible. This is certainly not the only passage um, that commands us to pray or teaches us anything about prayer. There's, there's a lot more in, in the Bible that, that speaks to praying. And so everything is not about praying is not being said here. But we do wanna, I do want to mention just a couple of things. We, we don't want to oversimplify what Jesus is saying, though there certainly is simplicity to it. And, and for one thing, if we think about what James pointed out, we recently went through um, the letter from James. And in James chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, James pointed out that oftentimes we fail in prayer in two ways. One is simply failing to ask for the things that we need. And of course, Jesus is making it very plain here. Ask, seek, knock. You have needs. He doesn't deny that. He acknowledges that. And he assures us that the Father knows that. So ask for those things that you need. And James says, you oftentimes fail in prayer because you simply have not asked. And then the second reason he gives is that you have asked, but you've asked from the wrong motives. You have, you've asked more from a selfish desire in some way, and you have not received what you have sought. Now, if we think about the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has also warned about some problems in prayer. Jesus has warned about praying to be seen. He spoke about hypocrites standing on the street corners and, and, and in the synagogues. And again, we looked at that um, a while back, and it's not that we are never to pray um, publicly, as it were, but not praying to be seen. We're not praying to man, but to God who is in heaven. And also he warned in chapter 6, verses 5 to 8, that we're not to, to pray like the pagans, like those that, that would pray with their repetitions and, and formulas and, and, and such in order to uh, manipulate God, to, to bring him into obligation to us in, in some way. As long as you say the right words in just the right way or maybe repeat enough times or whatever the case may be. Now secondly, when it comes to prayer, we also want to realize that we can identify at least four different ways of God answering prayer from Scripture. Um, and so we want to know what an answer is. God hearing us and answering us doesn't necessarily equate God giving us precisely the thing that we asked for. So just a few examples would be, one would be in Daniel. So in, in Daniel um, chapter 9 and verse 23, um, Daniel wants to understand the prophecy of Jeremiah, and he's praying to God to have understanding about that. And, and the Bible tells us very plainly that before he'd even ended his prayer, that God has sent the angel to come to him and to, to explain and to guide him through that. So in Daniel chapter 9, verse 23. So 
One way that we see God answering a prayer there is giving the thing that's been requested and doing so right away, immediately. In fact, before Daniel's even finished, the answer has already been dispatched. Well, another way that we see God answering prayer would be like the parable in Luke chapter 18 and verse number 7. And it was about the widow who, who's continually going to the judge, trying to get restitution, trying to get redress for um, the wrongs that, that she had suffered. And the illustration there was, or, or the, the implication there was, that God withheld giving the thing asked for for a time, but then eventually gave it. So here, this, this is two examples we've seen of God answering prayer. One, he's given the thing that's been asked for, and he's done so immediately. Another way, God has given the thing that was asked for, but not immediately. He's, there's been a time that it's been withheld, and then God has given the thing that's asked for. Well, here's the third way. And this would be an example from Deuteronomy chapter 3, verses 24 to 25, where Moses asks God to be able to enter the promised land, wants to put his feet on that soil that had been promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. By the time you get to Deuteronomy chapter 34, verses 4 to 5, Moses is not permitted to go into the promised land, but he is taken up and is able to view it. So God, in this case, answered this prayer by denying the request. He did not give the thing that was asked for. didn't give it immediately and didn't give it later. He just didn't give it at all. But he did give something else, and something you might say maybe even better. And then the fourth way would be like in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse number 9 in the case of Paul. Now, Paul talks about how that he had this thorn in the flesh, and, and we don't know exactly what it is. A lot of different people have their ideas about what it might have been. But regardless of that, we know that it was something that was causing him problems, and it was even something that he identified as, as some sort of, of satanic um, attack against him in some way. And he prayed that, that it would be removed, prayed three times that it would be removed, and God denied that request. And he didn't give it to him immediately, and he didn't give it to him later, and he didn't quite do things in the same way as Moses, but he did give grace for the lack of it. So God hears and answers this prayer. He says, I'm not going to give you this thing you've asked for, but I am going to give you of my grace so that you will be able to bear it. So that's just sort of a, of a, of a quick um, review of going through a few places in Scripture where we see God hearing and answering prayer. So we can't in our mind think that Jesus is, is saying very simply, oh, well, anything that you think you need, you just ask for and you're going to get it. That's not what Jesus is saying, and it's not what the Bible tells us. So then we go to verses 9 to 12, where Jesus speaks about giving good gifts, where he gives us some important assurances. Verse number 9, or what man is there of you whom if his son ask bread, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he give him a serpent? So now Jesus is giving this illustration to assure that not only that our prayers will be heard, but that God, the Father to whom we pray, is good and cares 
for his own. So he generalizes here, and he speaks about just any man that is a father. And the point that he's making is, is that we know naturally how to meet the needs of our children. Any normal father would not give a stone instead of bread to his hungry children. And then he adds this other about the fish and the serpent. Now, obviously, stones and bread, as well as fish and and snakes, something that can be similar in appearance and could be substituted. But the point that Jesus is making is that any normal father knows how to distinguish what will be for his child's good and what will be for his child's harm and will not intentionally give what is for their harm. Then we come to verse 11. If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father, which is in heaven, give good things to them that ask him? So Jesus is now concluding here with a principle to assure us that we ask and seek and knock to get what we need. Now, he says, if you being evil, and and by his use of evil here, Jesus means sinful, and, and, and he probably, I believe, is insinuating without faith. I don't believe that, that he's, he's talking here about someone that's deranged. He's just simply saying a, a normal, natural father knows how to give good gifts to his children. So he, d- he doesn't mean, again, someone that's intentionally trying to do them harm or something like that, and we know that sadly that does exist in the world. But rather, he's simply saying that even sinful men, imperfect and fallen human men, without faith, know how to give good gifts to their children. And they may be reasonably good fathers and husbands and citizens and employees and and other things. They they may be somewhat moral and, and ethical in their dealings. They know how to give things that are good and not things that are harmful to their children. Now, here again, we don't we don't want to get distracted by Jesus using this term good, that, that he, to give them something that's good. So by his use of that, he simply is, is showing this distinction between something that's beneficial and useful and needful for them as opposed to something that is harmful, um, something that would be negative toward them. So he's, he, by saying good, He doesn't mean that it's a meritorious work. He doesn't mean that it's a righteous work. And we talked about some of that um, with some of the the, uh, performance philanthropy that we looked at, I believe that was last week. It doesn't mean that it's a righteous work, even though the child actually received bread when it was hungry. In fact, his his point is that it's not a meritorious work. It's not a righteous work. He's, He's saying that even in their natural condition, a sinful condition, and without faith, they can distinguish and give good gifts. That's the point. 
men naturally know how to give good gifts, things that are beneficial to their children. And of course, the whole point of that is this comparison that he drives to. How much more shall your Father, which is in heaven, give good things to them that ask him? So we have this comparison, this lesser to the greater. And Jesus has said that even just natural men without faith, apart from faith, know how to give good beneficial things to their children that need them. And he's saying, how much greater is your Father in heaven than even what we might think to be the best of examples of natural fathers caring for their children? How much greater is your Father in heaven? How much greater in goodness? How much greater in knowledge? How much greater in resources? How much greater in ability? How much greater in every way is your Father in heaven? So then, the conclusion is, how much more should we expect him to give us good things in response to our requests. Well, then we come to this last verse in this passage, verse number 12. Therefore, all things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Well, obviously, the, the, the word therefore brings us to a conclusion. It's, it is a, it's a consequence. It's, it's something that um, derives from what has been said. And you also notice at the end of this verse that he makes a reference to the law and the prophets. And this brings us all the way back to Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 19. So really, this conclusion, as he comes here to verse number 12, is, is sort of summing up this entire body of teaching. And referring to the law and the prophets, and we looked at that when we were, when we were back in chapter number 5, and how that, that is a reference to the Old Testament. It's a reference to uh, the Scriptures, what we refer to as the Old Testament at the time. Not just a reference to the Old Covenant law, and also it's a reference to his statement earlier that he came to fulfill the law and the prophets and that all things there would be fulfilled. So we have a, a, a statement here that is agreeing essentially with the statement there. He says here, this is the law and the prophets. And as I understand um, the word that is, that is used there, it's just simply translated is, um, but it certainly could point to um, fulfillment. I believe it does contextually. So what I'm saying is Jesus is not here stating that this is a summary of the teaching of the Old Testament, rather that he is fulfilling the Old Testament. So in light of all that Jesus has commanded and in light of the promises that we have concerning prayer, we are commanded then to treat other people the way we ourselves want to be treated. And some refer to this as the golden rule, and 
There's a number of, of scholars that have pointed out how that there's similar statements as to this in many ancient cultures, uh, proverbial type statements, though really none of them are quite exactly what Jesus is, is saying here. Actually, his, uh, his statement is, is more, more precise and more um, inclusive because he's actually commanding the doing of good to others. Not Most of the cultural statements I've seen that have been uh, from these ancient proverbial type statements, they, they essentially go along the line of just not doing evil to another. Don't, don't do evil to someone that you wouldn't want done to you sort of thing. But Jesus is actually being more precise than that and saying, do good. Treat them as you yourself would want to be treated. Now, when you think about it, that sure seems to put us at a disadvantage. I mean, we can, we can think about situations that that seems to put us at, a, at an unfair disadvantage i'm going to treat others in this way i'm not being treated in this way i'm i'm going to suffer because of it but that is why that jesus has assured us concerning the care of our heavenly father so jesus encourages us in this passage he encourages us to pray to ask, to seek, to knock. And when we think about some of the previous warnings about prayer, it might almost seem to discourage us from prayer. In other words, don't pray just to be seen. Don't, don't pray out of a selfish motive. Don't pray in a vain way, in the way that pagan nations may pray. Well, that might seem to discourage us from prayer, but it really shouldn't be that way because Jesus is clearly encouraging us to pray. And so he's giving us what we might call five particular assurances in this passage. Number one, our Heavenly Father has a greater love for us than our earthly fathers. Many of us may be able to testify that we have and had very good loving fathers on earth. Some of us, that may not be able to be our testimony. But regardless of that, our heavenly father excels all earthly fathers. If you think about it, this is the point that the writer of Hebrews picked up on when talking about the chastisement of the Lord, how that he excels earthly fathers because his chastisement is always for our good. It's always for our good. There's always a good reason for it. It's always administered lovingly and is always needful. So that's number one. Our Heavenly Father has a greater love for us than our earthly fathers. Number two, our Heavenly Father is motivated to give us good things. Jesus said very plainly, He knows what things that you have need of. He said you are more valuable than the birds of the air. You are more valuable to Him than the grass of the field. 
He is very motivated. It's, it's, it's not that he is, is, is reticent and, uh, you know, the, the answer sometimes, um, you know, with our earthly fathers, we, we just felt like the default answer was always just no. And so we always had to, to figure out, well, what's going to be the best time and what's going to be the best way to approach this? And when I get that initial no, what am I going to come back with and how, how am I going to work this, you know? Well, we shouldn't really think of, of God that way. It's just the default no, God. He's motivated to give us good things, things that will be for our good, things that will benefit us. Number three, we are assured that what he gives us will not be harmful to us. These earthly fathers, he said, even that know how to give good gifts, but yes, but yet maybe even through incompetence might give something harmful to their children that they don't intend to do. Others may intend to do harm. But God will never give us that that is harmful to us. Verse number four. What God gives us will always be wise and good. And I know that even my experience with my own um, father was that, you know, there were often times, you know, he wouldn't give me maybe what I asked, but would give me something that was better in the sense that it was better for me, not that I found it more enjoyable at the time. And then number five, we have this assurance that we will not lack what we truly need to fulfill his word. And we've already talked about how Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount take um, knowledge of this present age and how it is a time of persecution and hatred toward those who love righteousness and love his kingdom and long for his kingdom to come. But anything that we truly need to fulfill his word, we will not lack.